Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. And let's begin with prayer, as we love to do. The eyes of all look to you, O Lord, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hands and satisfy the desires of every living thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What's it about today, John? Today, we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic, indirect communication. This was one of the things that got me hooked on the communication field in general. Uh, it was very exciting. I looked all over um, in my day-to-day life and the things that I read in scripture, found found this thing come up many, many times, and it was always just added a little bit of fresh air to whatever it was that, that we were, that I was witnessing at the time. Um, there is a, a Bible story that actually outlines this, this topic very well. And so we're going to start off by reading that. I think it's from uh, the time of King David. Uh, we'll read that. We'll discuss it a little bit, define it, and then we'll go from there. So, okay, take this, it away. This is Second Samuel twelve. So David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. Well-known story. He has committed murder to cover up the adultery. Well-known story, and uh, goes through a season of not repenting, which destroyed him inwardly. Um, but how to break through to him? So we have the story in Second Samuel 12 of Nathan the prophet designing his communication for David. So Second Samuel 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Parenthetically, I always kind of wondered, does David not, does nothing not kind of, I don't know. At this point, does he know what's about to happen? <laughs> it's, or is it's, he it's kind a, of... It's a bit of a strange yeah. thing. But uh, apparently nothing really, you know... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Nothing really alerted him to yeah. something else happening in the communication. So anyway, this is this is verse 4. The prophet Nathan telling his story. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Again, David, sensing nothing going on, <laughs> says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. And then there's a few verses of explaining why you are the man. And then we get... Uh, not to leave out verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. There ends our story. So that was the story that led you into indirect communication, was it not? 
Yeah, I was I was in a PhD orientation class, and a man walked in named Ben Frazier, and just you know, part of the program just told us who he was and his expertise or area of passion and communication was indirect. I put my hand up and said, "What is that?" <laughs> and he told this story. This is right where he went, and that, of course, became the inspiration for my dissertation—a way to combine my study of Hebrew with communication. It's just a kind of a beautiful thing how that worked out. That this kind of thing is written into the scriptures more often than we realize, and we'll be developing that thought in this podcast or, yeah. and the next episode too, I bet. So what about, I think it'd be cool to talk about what what about Nathan's communication was indirect? What makes it indirect? It, it is a difficult <laughs> thing to, yeah. to define. I would say in a broad umbrella way. Uh, indirect communication is communication that does something to people who have the truth already, but they relate themselves poorly to that truth. So typically, we're not bringing any new information to somebody. They know the information, in fact, very well. In other words, David knows he killed Uriah. David knows he committed adultery with Bathsheba. But he's relating himself to that information in a very, very false and poor way. And um, so that's indirect. Is It's not something you're being told you don't know. It's a set of strategies uh, and a set of communication choices to disturb you or to, to uh, cause you to linger or reflect, to take something you thought you knew and realize you didn't. You know, there's this whole range of things, but yeah. it always kind of has that one quality of it's not information that is... Uh, a direct transmission of some some new yeah. thing. It's not f- replacing or filling a gap from something that was missing. Exactly. It's revealing something that was maybe already known. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm sure we'll eventually get into the range of scriptures that deal with this. Um, I think one kind of validating thing, just to validate the idea, is so there's this Old Testament verse, I think Isaiah, that where the prophet talks to the people and says, be ever hearing but never perceiving, right? Be ever knowing but never understanding. And he, and the issue he's diagnosing is that the people have heard the truth over and over and they think they know it, but it really hasn't penetrated at all. And so we're talking about communication that's designed for an audience that is resistant to the truth, thinks it knows, is uh, holding some kind of illusion about themselves or about that truth. And so what's really interesting is when Jesus is directly asked why he taught in parables, that wouldn't seem to be the obvious way to be teaching, you know, in in the stories of his own. And and he quoted a verse like that. And he explains his, his switching to parable as a dominant form, as a response to the audience that Jesus thought they know, they thought they knew. And so it's somewhat of a judgment on them. But, uh, it makes me think of, just to finish that thought, the disciples, there's at least one clear example of the disciples hearing a parable and not understanding it, like Jesus said, and asking him, what does that mean? It was the parable of the sower. Mm-hmm. What in the world does that mean? And to me, that just suggests, well, that, that very indirect form had served its purpose. It had created a need to know. It had created the urgency of the question. And then Jesus answered very directly. The sower is God, and the seed is the word. He didn't hold mm-hmm. anything back. He didn't remain in ambiguity. It, it uh, reestablishes the relationship, I think, is what makes it interesting, is that it fills or 
it changes the relationship between all of those things. And then when the direct information is there, those things have a proper relationship now instead of instead of the misunderstanding that right. might have been before. I so. agree. So, so David relating to the thing he already knew that he was a murderer. It's the, the story for the, for that whole first six verses, you know, the, the power of the, the indirectness to leave the barriers down. Mm-hmm. So David is listening and he's not resisting what he's hearing. He's very open to it. I yeah, think it's interesting right. that Nathan doesn't ask him a question about what should happen to, about this no. situation. He burns with anger and already comes to judgment right. from that without being asked yes. is how urgent it was after hearing that story. So, right. And once you've condemned yourself the way David did, how can he resist anymore? Yeah. He, he's brought into a much closer, honest kind of contact with the truth of what he was. Mm-hmm. And, and you think, how else could Nathan have done that? Now you, yeah. You know, you, so it has to do with how you convey ideals and truth to people when it's not what they already believe. So it could be truth that really threatens their very sense of identity. It could be truth that just somehow calls them out and shows them themselves. So people resisting um, is communication that's really kind of, again, really plugged into the idea of, boy, once you just start lecturing somebody in a, in a yeah. full-on directness, just the drawbridge is pulled up and they will spend all their mental energy on resisting. Yeah. Giving on themselves reasons to not listen, to not care, to not think. Mm-hmm. And so we're saying, how can communication not immediately arouse all those Defense barriers? mechanisms and barriers. Right. Yeah. And you could be rightfully nervous about just asking even these questions, but what will get interesting is just seeing a range of these things. So the story of Nathan and King David is not at all unique. Um, and as we get more into what these strategies are, what are other ways... Yeah. I think that would become very, very clear that there's something going on here that all the scriptures that are are not providing something new but are taking what you already know and causing you to, yeah, we've already said it. Yeah, I think that's the interesting part, especially today, is that things that we already know, there's no lack of information, there's something else missing. Mm-hmm. That's a quote from, is that a Kierkegaard that's quote? That's Kierkegaard quoted by Craddock. I think okay. he, he picks up on that that idea of something else being missing yeah. besides the information. So that's Kierkegaard relating to being in Denmark and where everybody just thought, yeah, whatever, we're Christian. You know, what else would we be? We're in Denmark, you know? Yeah. And that's sort of, you know, a judgment we're not quick to make that people have the information, but they're not really appropriating it. We're not quick to judge other people's hearts that way. But Kierkegaard had reasons to look around Denmark and say this this is just words, you know. Yeah. There's no. This is seeing and trembling. Not, uh, no. This is hearing and not understanding right. or knowing. And right. what was that from Isaiah? Yeah. A very similar yeah. situation. Right. Right. Where... So you know, Kierkegaard is thought of as pretty problematic. So one thing that triggered for me, John, was that Kierkegaard diagnosed his time in the opposite way that Martin Luther diagnosed his times, and so Luther you know, living in a day under gross spiritual tyranny, there is a lot of what he called anfechtung in his own life, the profound struggle of knowing how can a man be saved, how in the world can there be peace with God. And in the presence of that urgent need to know, 
he doesn't need to resort to, you know, the same range of strategies Kierkegaard did. So Kierkegaard looks across his time and doesn't see any of that urgent need to know what does it mean to be a Christian. And so what I love about Kierkegaard is I think he's asking a question that is pretty much like our question in the church today. Very relevant well. to our yeah, times. Times are not dissimilar. So I can talk more about Kierkegaard. Do you want to jump in with something, John? I don't want to... No, no, I think show. that's the... That was kind of the the plan was that we'd go right to Kierkegaard. Yeah, so okay. I think no, we 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 established basically what indirect was. Is it is a different kind of communication, and not to it, it's not not direct, but it's it has a purpose to reveal or repair a relationship between things, or to uh, bring to light things that might have been suppressed or or ignored. Sure. To to uh, as uh, to to sneak past those watchful dragons that that might arise when someone is presented with information that they think they already know, mm-hmm. and and resist it. Sure. Yeah. I would say though that there are also positive examples too, which actually interested me almost more. Um, it goes to the communication of Christ in the Old Testament. So I mean, what I mean by that is, so the Hebrews didn't didn't tell their history in epic poetry. Um, when the Hebrews wrote Hebrew poetry, it has this fe- the same feature of it's playing with information people already have. So if I didn't already know the Exodus story, if I didn't already know the people walked on dry land right through the river, if I didn't already know that, then the references in the Psalms and Prophets just wouldn't mean anything to me. It's the very fact that, yeah, I know that story, that then I come later to the song form and the poetry form. And that's just a, a different kind of example of taking... History, I know, but saying, but do you really know it? Have you, yeah, have you it, deepened it makes your it involvement? deeper that yeah. a deeper understanding. You linger yeah. over it. You you reflect yeah. on it. You you in some ways you see it. Uh, the the word is defamiliarized. It's it comes in some different strange terms. It lets you have what Kierkegaard was really only after was a fresh hearing of the gospel. How do we get the gospel to to uh, actually pass through your mind and mm-hmm. not, not the easy dismissal, like, yeah, we know this already, yeah. that kind of a thing. So maybe just a word about Kierkegaard, because we, we're rightfully sort of, as Lutherans, we're suspicious, mm-hmm. and part of that is his fault. Um, so Kierkegaard diagnosing Denmark that way, where you'd ask someone, are, are you a Christian? The answer could be likely, well, I'm yeah, of course. Danish, what else would yeah. I be? You know, how could I not be? How could I not be? What are you talking about? So people are never confronted by what it, what it, that actually means. Um, so he did a really strange thing, which is that he would write, always publish always two books at one time. And one book would be a book of philosophy. And what he would do is he would take some position in a pseudonym, some position made up outside of Christianity, trying to make sense of it. So famously, um, Johannes de Salentio was a pseudonym. John the Silent writes uh, Fear and Trembling. It's about how do you make sense of the story of Abraham actually being willing to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. And so Kierkegaard writes from a position outside of the faith, just what in the world do you make of this? And he gives the story different endings and just plays with it because he's trying to let that story be fresh and and kind of rub your dreams more than the flannel graph version, right? So mm-hmm. 
But what he would always do is at the same time, he would publish a book of sermons. He called them discourses, um, edifying discourses. And there you'd get, not that it's all easy, but there you'd get a recognizably Lutheran piety and Lutheran voice. Now, he was a pietist, so there's lots of ways to criticize Kierkegaard. His dad was just, you know, steeped in a very rigid form of pietism, and so that problem certainly exists, as do certain phrases of Kierkegaard that just naturally don't sound right to us. But um, the idea is you can recognize a Lutheran voice, actually quite exquisitely beautiful. And at the end of his life, he wrote about his authorship, about what he was doing, that he really was saying, and this is what no one knows who doesn't take his sermon seriously, that he really was saying, look, philosophy is bankrupt. He, he's, he's creating these pseudonyms that are self-canceling voices that meant to all combine to say, there's nothing here for you. And he believed strenuously that philosophy combined with Christianity, it will always be Christianity that loses and becomes something other than what it is. Pushed to the side yeah, for the sake yeah. of... Yeah. So the fact that Kierkegaard is misread, I mean, well, of course, you've got to take into account yeah. what he's doing and then find where's the real Kierkegaard in all of this. And that's <laughs> what I think is really interesting about his authorship is that you can't just read one book. You have to take his whole, everything that he wrote all together and piece it together right. before you can come to an understanding. Right. And there's not too many authors that I know that are like that. No, that, it's a radical commitment to a, and, I want to say lifelong program, but he only lived till 42, so it wasn't, you know, yeah. what it might sound like. But but you read Kierkegaard's scholars, not that I understand the man, I'm not claiming to. He's, yeah. he's a genius and very baffling. But when you read a scholar who's never read the sermons and just mm-hmm. discounts them out of hand, and what that scholar's going to do is then they'll come to his account of his own authorship at the end of his life and just say, well, that's just more irony. And they won't take seriously what he said Yeah. about how these sermons were, he called them a little flower on a path waiting for the ideal reader. Like He was famous for the philosophy and it grieved him. He wanted mm-hmm. his ideal reader to find that little flower that was his sermons in which he says, you know, it's an honor to to owe everything to Christ. And he speaks in brilliant terms about the objectivity of the gospel and the one safe place to hide that is Jesus. For sure. So that surprises a lot of people. Yeah. So it's not a full-blown defense of him, mm -hmm. but it's... There are certainly flaws, and you take everything with a grain of salt. But I think, especially considering how the, the problems in the church and at his time and our culture that we have at this time where we hear the gospel over and over and over and over again and we're kind of numb to it sometimes or even just our culture at large where people are resistant to Christianity and scripture and the story of Christ and and the way that he approaches that that problem is very pertinent to our that's what to I our times, well. and I think that's where the, a lot of the value comes in in understanding what he said and exploring what um, how he went about you know, help helping people, leading them back to Christ, which I think is what in at least for for our podcast, at least bringing sure. together communication and and scripture, bringing them back to the Bible is the goal, and with a fresh with a fresh pair of ears, right. We're not quick again to. I'm quick to say it about myself that I, there's a familiarity with the gospel that, mm-hmm. that I sometimes regret as far as, uh, you know, the season of coldness and so on that we have. 
not quick to judge other people that way, but I just think that the question he's asking, how to communicate this in a day that is under such an illusion that they already know what it is and have dismissed it out of, out of hand, like it's been debunked and found ridiculous long ago. Who, who should bother with it? That the question of how in the world, how in the world to get that generation to, to hear what the gospel actually is? And I think that's a, just a valid, valid question, as I said before we went on, um, that will not take us away from Scripture, but to the Scripture, as we see the ways God himself inspired his writers to communicate. So my dissertation was that issue of can we validate the general idea here by just noticing what's right there on the surface of the scriptural way, that the predominance of story, for example. Mm-hmm. So we'll get into that, John, and we'll get into, I'm sure, just yeah. the range of strategies. But story is a real kind of top of the list. Yeah, and I will say it was hard, especially episodes two and three, where we did talk about narrative extensively. Right. It was hard to not... We knew we were going to talk about indirect at some point, and we didn't right. want to do it too soon. Uh, we wanted to give it some time, but we also... its It comes up so frequently that it's hard to ignore. Once you see it, you can't not see it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's a story from Kierkegaard that we can kind of set him aside for the most part, but uh, it's like the Nathan's, the prophet story, that it's just useful for putting a face on this idea. So I've told it in other contexts, but it, it goes like this. Kierkegaard is a young Lutheran man, brilliant guy, rejected the faith of his father and um, found it really not difficult to fend off direct approaches, right? People would come to him and would bring the truth to him that he was forsaking. And it's just not a difficult thing for him to to uh, erect the boundary and the barriers and dismiss and everything we've said. It's just an automatic thing. And um, not merely a psychological thing either. It's it's the the devil is behind the, every illusion that there is, of course. So anyway, the story goes, he's in a cemetery, um, short and sweet, he's in a cemetery in Denmark. He apparently there are some kind of there's some kind of hedges between the rows, and so Kierkegaard is hidden out of sight in one of the rows, and on the next next row over a little drama is unfolding, and it is a a grandfather and a little boy are talking over what is obviously the grave of the boy's father, and uh, the grandfather knows he will not live long enough to steer the boy past all the temptations that ruined the faith of the father. The the father had died apart from Christ, tragically. So the grandfather um, knows he won't live long enough to see to his sons, his grandson's faith. And and so Kierkegaard is just listening to this, the, the grandfather speaking quietly, insistently about Jesus and about forgiveness and about eternity and heaven. And at one point, the grandfather puts a little boy on oath to be faithful to Jesus. And the little boy says, I, f- I swear it, Grandpa. And the grandpa scoops the boy up in his arms and tears rolling down, unashamed. And, and Kierkegaard is in the next row, just listening. And he would, as I always say, spend the rest of his life trying to understand the power of that. Why that, why that was the communication that broke through. And it's something about the overhearing, which I think we probably has come up before. I can't help but yeah. mention it. The... Uh, Words coming to him in a form that did not arouse his opposition. He wasn't even being addressed. Words that came Words that wor- to him. weren't meant for him. Right. Didn't waken up that whole, that whole range of dismissals that were so patterned and, 
and he finds himself drawn into this talk about Jesus as if he'd never heard it before. And so that becomes another kind of overarching strategy of the leaving the barrier down. And, and I mean, it, it, you can't not think then about how the scriptures do tend to come to us. I mean, there's overhearing written all oh, across other audiences. We are always overhearing. Other audiences being addressed. Paul and the Corinthians discussing some matter. You know, mm-hmm. it's like um, one scholar talked in terms of combining distance and participation. So it's like going to a theater. And the actors on the stage don't walk up to the footlights and say, hey, you out there, you see what's going on up here? They don't talk <laughs> directly. It doesn't... But it not isn't, usually. Not they don't, usually. Yeah, yeah. Not sometimes. If, what is it? The fifth wall? Fourth. Fourth, fourth wall? <laughs> okay. I can't... I lose track of the yeah, walls. That's all right. But... Um, it's not less powerful by virtue of being um, mm-hmm. just something that draws us into the drama unfolding in front of us. We are we are involved too. So that mm-hmm. distance, that allowing, like when you're reading a book, that allowing the reader to have his or her space. It, yeah, it gives you space to to step back and what do and I make it real to you. And, yeah, what do I think about this? Yeah, and, and to reflect and and so um, I, yeah, I do think that stories. So, Sometimes helps to stories say, do help distance. It. I'm still kind of, I still am trying to figure out how exactly you would define indirect because we have like as this example, this would be overhearing, and then there's parables, which is the sort of narrative space that separates you from what's actually real that you want to be talking about and reestablishes those relationships so that when you bring it back on a direct level, those relationships have been mended the way that they ought to be. There's just so many different approaches. I, it's tricky. It's tricky to come up with like a clear, concise definition for this is exactly what indirect communication is and then go out and like seek it out with, with everything. But I agree. The definition of uh, communication that does something to you who who have the truth, but you're not relating to it well, that doesn't apply to the parables necessarily, yeah. for example. So one definition to cover all, I don't know if there is one. Yeah, and you can't say that it's always an overhearing either because there are times when, you know, the parable is being told to you. And right. you you're the one that is... Well, in that situation, that wasn't, I didn't intend that. That actually just, you're the man. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, it's unavoidable to turn to scriptural examples to try to flesh this out more. I think about this, the book of Job, which uh, famously has three friends of Job in dialogue with him, all dealing with the problem of evil and suffering and pain and and how to untangle all that. You get to the end of the book, at the very end, Job doesn't know, well, let me think. Yeah, Job doesn't know. At the end of the book, we have the writer validating that Job was right, their friends were wrong. Now you got to go back and read the whole thing now that you know, okay, and all of that, Job was right, friends were wrong. Uh, Book of Ecclesiastes, which just has these, to me at least, two different moods. One is optimistic, one is pessimistic, and they're just clashing so profoundly in that book. And and the book just has a, what do you make of that? It just, it, yeah. disturbs you especially it, right at the end and right everything is meaningless that that well, is the conclusion on the matter <laughs> fear god and keep his commandments right that's all and as you written throughout the whole book obviously and so i always think that book 
tears the comfortable mask off the universe and sends you to other places in the Bible to, mm-hmm. for the meaning that you need. You know, it does have its own kernel of fear God. You know, remember your creator, it says, when, when you were old. Uh, it says that poetically and beautifully. But um, there's more to the question of meaning, and that drives you to the end of John's gospel where Christ stands there alive, you know, which is, again, overhearing, the overhearing of Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's not addressed to us. It's not addressed to the soldiers. It's not addressed to the world. It's it's between Jesus and the Father. And I've always thought is if there's any verse that dispels illusions about who we are and illusions about who God is, um, that's the one. And then there's that other cemetery in John's Gospel where she thought he was a gardener and he says, he said her name, Mary. All of this is overheard by us. And again, not for that reason less influential. So, so yeah, the fascinating set of questions it raises, that's kind of what we, you and I share. It's hard yeah. to pin this all down. It's, it's kind of, it's invigorating to go through scripture, seeking out where this style of communication right. was, exactly. was used. And then you did that extensively with the, with the old Testament. Right. So that was the whole point. So not reading God's mind, we can't, but to try to carefully and thoughtfully ask why story. We, and we dealt with yeah. that in two episodes. The, why, why poetry? Yeah. Why imagery? Why apocalyptic? Yeah. If we, if we so on. Write, like, assume that the way God communicates with us is intentional, then picking about, apart why, why this way. Right. There must be, so, there, there's something there right. to, something to unearth. Something to learn. Yeah. Something to learn. We're not trying to peer behind the curtain of conversion and, and see the Spirit doing what only He can do, which we will never understand. But there, but the Scriptures, I, I still think it's a valid question, the communication issues that are right on the surface. You know, Nathan going to David, why, why do it that way? That's, I think, a valid question mm-hmm. with some very um, fruitful answers that come, you know. So, why, why, why the prophets in their agony? You know, why does theology come in those terms where we're going to find ourselves identifying, you know, sharing human stuff with Moses on his knees before a bush that burns? Why that way, you know? So Kierkegaard felt that in, until we're catching the, the emotion or the mood of the text, we're really... Again, dealing with it falsely, we're dealing with it in a speculative way, trying to puzzle out the ideas rather than, you know, being yeah. sensitive not only to what it teaches but also what it's doing to us. So this is my yeah. conclusion was that the the reason for the forms of scripture, the poetry, and that's that whole long litany, among the reasons has to be that it's affecting us. The form itself is affecting us. The story itself is affecting us by mm-hmm. leaving the the barrier down and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting going to, well, I remember reading it was very enlightening cause I'd never, it, it's just such a fresh hearing that it's hard to go back and read Ruth the same way mm-hmm. ever. It's hard to go to the burning bush and not, not see those things in play or right. uh, song of songs. I remember was a very interesting one mm-hmm. too. Um, and then even in the even in the New Testament to see where where it pops up, um, I remember I did a did one chapel sermon during my time at at MLC, and it was on Revelation, where 
God writes letters to the seven churches. And that even that, it's like you can find it, you find it, it's hard not to see it. Right. Yeah, uh, we're reading somebody else's mail, you know, says somebody <laughs> has said. Um, and we can embrace that and not, I don't know, feel bad about noticing mm-hmm. the fact that Paul and the Corinthians, as I say, are discussing this matter. And, and we are just on the outside listening, finding out that it has everything to do with us. Yeah. So, you know, burning bush, for example, I mean, that's, there's nothing obvious about a burning bush as far as how do you communicate Especially with when Moses. it's not like it's continual, it's not burning up. Right. It's just on fire. So it just arouses the question, what do you make of this? You know, and, and so what's, what's not known about Kierkegaard, I didn't mean to keep coming back to him, but... Uh, it's hard not to sometimes you, you as read, well, but... One of his books is called Practice in Christianity, in Christianity. That's the one that he wrote under his own name, but then at the last minute at the publisher, he changes it to a pseudonym. And the reason seems to be that this was the book that really expressed his ideal view of Christianity. He just wasn't prepared to put his name on it as if he lived up to it. But so I think that's kind of the real the real guy there. And what you see is across all his writing, but especially there, is the man is just utterly obsessed with the person of Jesus. He's just obsessed with the God man. And he can spend a lot of ink on that. A lot of pages he calls Christ sort of paraphrasing Simeon, the uh the sign of contradiction. So um Every word from the mouth of Jesus would make you, would unnerve you, saying, what do I make of this? He, a man can't be a sign of God. <laughs> it's a sign of contradiction. The infinite can't be signified by the finite. It's blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But the idea is, every word out of his mouth, this, this man acting and speaking in the character of God, would have that, that effect of just sending you inward, as we said. What are you raising the urgency of the question? Mm-hmm. What do I make of it's him? piercing. Exactly. Right into you. Exactly. That's, you know, so that's Kierkegaard, that, that obsession. And I think what you and I both uh, probably said we admire about Kierkegaard too, other things, is his view of scripture is so high. And you think of the times he lived, he just gave no time to any, um, what shall we say, uh, scientific principle of what these documents are. He just would not listen. He was, this is the word of God, and he really... He really lived in the biblical world. Yeah. The book on his, you know, bedside, well-worn Bible. He lived in that world. And, but um, I think I might have lost my train of thought. Kierkegaard, I think I lost my train of thought, John. That's all right. So I'm, send that back to the kitchen. Yeah, we'll do that. Uh, wait yeah, till sure. episode, what are we on? <laughs> six now? So six, we'll, we'll send it back. back and we'll remember what the it'll train of thought come, was. It'll come back. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I think is especially interesting about indirect is, um, well, when I went to, to school for communication in the communication field, it is not really a, like, a, I don't want to say popular, but it's not really a well-known or well, like a thought out. It's not as, um, like, I didn't come across it in very, very much at all, unless I was bringing it up. The, the idea of indirect communication oh, as like right, a, a right. communication theory. So uh, that's that's another thing that I that, think is interesting. It's a little bit obscure. That even, in, was, even in the communication field is a very like, what is this? It's hard to it's hard to define. It's hard to put your finger on it. You have to chase my, it around. That was so, my train of thought. 
Oh, okay. So, <laughs> well, the, well, sorry. I guess no, we're no, no. not waiting till episode six. But, the train uh, of thought was that, uh, practically speaking, what we admire about Kierkegaard is that he was talking about communication a century ahead of its time. We, yeah. I think we got into this last time, the Shannon Weaver model. It's, he's talking in terms of receiver and channel and... Yeah, you know, reduce all communication down to an equation, right. a mathematical equation that represents the transfer of information. But that those were his terms a yeah. hundred years in advance of anybody else. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the whole podcast is dedicated to the idea that there are Christians who deserve their place at the table, right? Who have been thinking deeply about communication and not only that, but communication in richly theological terms. And that's the part of the fascination here is that he was doing that. In part, in part, you have to read his journals and papers. And again, that book at the end of his career to, to see what the intentionality was. But, uh, wow, that's pretty interesting. You know, someone yeah, to, who got there so far ahead of anybody. Mm-hmm. And that he was so misunderstood, too. Again, his own fault, but yeah. yeah. That, that's one of the funnier quotes from him, I think, is like, you you don't even understand what you don't understand about me or something along something those lines. Something like that, yeah. Do you have any Kardashian quotes? Oh, there, so... What was that? Here's a little aside. There's a, there's a Twitter account called Kim Kierkegaardashian, <laughs> which is a, supposed, just a, a blend of tweets that are in the style of, like, Kim Kardashian, who I will say I do not really know, follow, understand any of. I just I know that there's a person called Kim Q, uh, <laughs> Kim Kardashian, who is very popular, and she has a Twitter account, and she tweets things about her life, and people are obsessed with that. Then there's also uh, Kierkegaard, very deep philosophical things, and there's a parody account that kind of blends those things together. So you'll get. Uh, I'm trying to think of, of some of them off the top of my head. My favorite, I think, is um, I cleaned my closet today, but I'm still a burden to myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's the structure of all these quotes. Yeah, like, so it, it blends in. Like, yeah. and something, but I despair of myself. I'm gonna, I, so if you could take it for a second, I'll pull it up and see if there's any, any gems. Oh, here. take it for a second. Okay, what shall I do? So I'm, I'm reading my uh, one-year Bible. This is no no prideful boast here. I haven't done that nearly often enough in my life, but I'm reading a one-year Bible. And uh, this is sort of on my mind, this uh, concept of asking not just what do these scriptures teach, but how do they teach it, and what does that do to you? So, I don't know, John, a story I hadn't thought about deeply before, or very much before, was, so this is Genesis 15. Um, This is the part of the Bible that famously has New Testament theology poking through so so unmistakably. God has made a covenant with Abraham. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and very great reward. And speaks about um, the heir he will give to Abraham and so on. And we have that verse that says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him. He counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham righteous by faith right there in the deep basement of the Old Testament. Um, so That's the bigger picture of the dissertation, is thinking in kind of fresh terms about the Old Testament as an indirect communication of Christ. That was kind of the the major frame. So what happens after that is uh, probably a well-known enough story. It's Abraham falling into a dream, and 
the story just has such a I don't know such a strange and ancient feel to it like this is this is reminiscent of something before history this idea of two people are going to join a covenant and what we're going to do is we're going to take birds and animals and tear them apart and we'll put these bloody carcasses down on two rows and the people um, joining in covenant are going to walk through the rows and what what seems so that's indirect in its own way. I think the implication is pretty clear. We're going to sure. walk through these carcasses, meaning if 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 yeah. I violate this covenant, let this happen to me. You know, um, what we can say with great certainty is that if two parties were equal in status, then they would both walk through this path together through the carcasses and all that blood. If one party was definitely the stronger party making a treaty with a weaker party, then of course the weaker party is going to go through down these roads. But uh, Abraham has this vision, and Abraham there is in the helplessness of sleep, and there's this vision of a smoking fire, fire pot that is the presence of the Lord and blazing. And Abraham, while he just lies there watching, sees this fire pot pass through the, the row of carcasses. And so it's God himself is the one that goes through goes through and so like what in the world does that mean you know I what I find is I, I mentioned this in the context of just reading the Bible cover to cover is that it just has often struck me that the God you meet there is fierce I mean, there are there are places that you just think Lord who can who can bear this kind of God God of absolute holiness and and judgment that can be severe and and we all know this. We know the Bible is law and gospel. We know that that insight opens the scriptures to us, as you see both God's holiness and his grace. We all know that. But then as you actually read it, you find yourself actually sort of disturbed and troubled by the fierceness of God. And then you come to something like this. You know, what seems to mean that when things have fallen apart between God and humanity, that God is the one who passes through, that God is the one who... Will pay the cost, you know, yeah. and just set your mind up for the. I think, I mean, I can be wrong. I don't even need to be dogmatic about the. Again, the sort of urgent questions that it raises. Could this be saying that I myself will be t will be the one torn apart when things have fallen apart between God Himself and humanity? Yeah. So, but what a fascinating thing that is to just exactly stop and linger and think about that. God passes through. So. Um, yeah, it's uh, we said before. Once you kind of have your radar tuned to just the question of how God is revealing Himself to us, then you it, it gives find yourself you, relating yeah. in a little bit of a different way to some of these texts. Yeah, and it helps me slow down and and take the time to to ponder and contemplate mm -hmm. things like that as well. Absolutely. Um, so I think it'd be a good time to transition to indirect in our day and age and how we can so we we've mostly been examining the definition and how it appears in scripture but we can also then like how can we use this same strategy if this is if this is a way that we can communicate christ and bring people back to scripture uh how does that look today but i i did look up this account because there are some it's going to be a little <laughs> It's going to be interesting. Uh, so here's here's one. Just got the best spray tan. 
There is an indescribable joy which glows through us unaccountably. <laughs> My, I, okay, and another. I scarcely recognize myself. My mind is like a turbulent sea. <laughs> I was testing new mascara. <laughs> uh, it's uh, um. Here we go. Last one. Uh, each individual fights for himself, with himself, within himself, in order to free himself before God. I'm going to be so sore tomorrow. <laughs> uh, that's, it's just a, it's a very interesting, uh, especially at the very beginning when it was just the, the idea itself that the, the account was going for. It was very, <laughs> just a little, <laughs> whenever I opened Twitter, that was, what it was one of the few that's, accounts I followed and it was very, it was good, good fun. Um, but let's, yeah, let's, let's, think about this is a question that I ask myself quite a bit is that if, you know if this is such a good way or an effective way to communicate and we see today the same things that people like Kierkegaard were experiencing in their time or people like Isaiah saw back in the Old Testament where there's resistance or no shortage of information but something else missing and that how that indirect style of communication would be an effective way to combat that and and sneak behind those resistances and and bring a new life to scripture how can we use that today that's the question that i ask i'm wondering john would that maybe be a question to whet the appetites for the next episode we have a couple of other things to do that's true Maybe we can collect our thoughts then. That's How about that? Asking a huge question. All right, so so let's. Um, We're we'll, forty five we'll, minutes, by the way. So. Yeah, we'll table that, um, and we'll we'll. Um, we have some things to send back to the kitchen, I believe. <laughs> They're not that bad. They're not that bad, but it's still good to give us some space to right. to think about those things and then to perhaps clarify what we meant or what we <laughs> didn't mean. <laughs> Well, the the one thing I, I shouldn't be chuckling. It's a really serious thing. Yeah. No, we had we were talking about. Um, I mentioned self compassion, and we were trying to relate that, viewing ourselves in the light of grace to the life of repentance. And the one thing I wouldn't want to, sort of let, be vague was, the reality is we do, we do actually need to say what the psalmist says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And not, so nothing I said or we said should suggest that the Christian does not have to find himself, herself, over and over in those depths of uh, being compelled to see myself as I am under God as a sinner. And um, so the answer to that is not to find some way to feel better about my old self. The answer to that is to, to die with Christ and crucify that self and let the law do what it's always trying to do. So, and then we were talking about how repentance is a refreshing thing meant to liberate us. And that remains true, but I, it's not trying to, I don't know, avoid the worthlessness of our flesh. And, mm-hmm. you know, Lutherans, we, I said it before, probably, we, we learn to call things as they are. And so, and so when, when the Christian then looks for the sense of, well, now there's worth, right? We're not going to ever say Christ died for me because we were worth it. This is not the proof of our worth that yeah. he died for us. No, this is it's much more mysterious that you would die for sinners when you were a holy God. I mean, who does that with power? 
what, what God does. Yeah. And now the Christian doesn't... I guess what I was thinking about... If, I can I can talk about the worth I now have in Christ. I, I think even better is to realize I just don't have to be obsessed with that as I constantly try to learn how to put my mind on Him mm-hmm. and off of myself in such hand-wringing questions of what am I worth, you know? <laughs> yeah, so yeah. There's some paradox there, too, but I wanted to just come back to the issue of actually we do despair of ourselves, and it's very painful, and nothing I said would meant to... Yeah. In the words of Kim Kierkegaard Dashian, my purse is small, but it holds a lot of despair. (laughs) That's perfect. Yes, wise words to live by. Um, Yeah. And the other thing, John, not even something to correct, but you got into something that I'd never heard before, and I think I was deer in the headlights, like I don't even know what to say to that. Do you remember that? that Oh, so I think I was, and again, I uh, oftentimes, especially once we get towards a more exploratory part of the of a train of thought i'm not really coming to the conversation with like a full prepared defense of what i'm about to say it's more of a like i wonder if this is a new way to think about things and i think the the idea was that the fact that we are self-relational creatures is not an insignificant thing there's something there's something deeper there that uh is to be explored I, th- I think that's I think the. I, I think that's generally what I was trying to say. If I was to be concise about it, right. and I maybe was a little bit long-winded in that, but well, I said that a, same thing myself. I think it was the expression of dealing with ourselves as symbols or signs. I yeah. wasn't sure what you meant, but now I think I do know. Yeah, um, you meant the way, and maybe it's one of those things that is defining to just the human experience versus mm-hmm. other creatures. It's just it is human to reflect on ourselves. Yeah, and to have that sort of distance, that strange distance between. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm going to make it worse instead of better, but. Mm-hmm. I think, well, I'm, and maybe I also included uh, some idea about the, the image of God. So God is a self-relational creature as well. And, and that we are made in his image. Maybe there's a connection there to be explored. Mm-hmm. I think that might've been, also where I was going, but that's also a very like, like, I don't under, I don't understand what it, I barely understand myself at like self-relationally wise. Like how can I possibly comprehend how God comes to make decisions when we hear him, you know, think, well, what should we do about this? And like at the tower of Babel and the, and, and God says, well, we'll, we'll confuse their languages because otherwise, you know, nothing will be impossible for them. That's just such an intriguing thing to me that, that that's how the decision was come to. There is a self-relational implication there and I, I can't comprehend it. And that, but there are similar, there are similarities between, between those two, and I, between I think the way that God yeah. relates to himself and the way we relate to us. So I, th- I think it's ourselves. I think it's an example of God, Switching to that language early in Genesis, it comes with the creation of man and woman that he goes to that language of let us. Yeah. And so, you know, the tentative questioning is this something that has some part of the image of God. What I enjoy about communication scholarship is when you see a whole range of things like this that are trying to get at, um, as carefully as we can, trying to get at what, 
what does it mean to be human? And there's a list of those. Like yeah. homo narens is we are the storytelling creatures and homo ludens is we are the creatures that laugh and homo faber is we are the creatures that create in our own yeah. way, not from nothing. And homo liturgicus, we are the creatures that will always worship something and find something ultimate. And there's a whole list of things. So on that list that we are the creatures that reflect upon ourselves in a way we don't know that attaches to animal existence. I mean, we're yeah. kind of in a mysterious territory here, but Exactly. And I think that's part of maybe if I could make a metaphor of how I approach it, you just take definitions and you'd see where you can plug things in to one another. Is there a relationship there between these two things? Maybe these two things? Maybe these pairs of relationships are similar in some way. I just I'm always looking for mm-hmm. maybe patterns or something, not to reduce everything to a mathematical approach but sometimes it's 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 fun for me to Isn't try that, that out kind sometimes. of what art is you're an artist i think if you're an artist so yeah is an art often about bringing things together oh and watching yeah. how they play very much yeah. yeah yeah and i mean that that we could go on a whole separate conversation with that and i don't think that that'd be necessary but yeah i think right. it's it's interesting to in the exploratory realm Mm-hmm. Use that as a strategy to come up with, oh, maybe this is a new way to think about something. Okay. So, yeah. So, how'd that come back from the kitchen? Yeah, I don't know. It still <laughs> had a little bit of like, you know, you take the tomato off the sandwich, but there's still the tomato juice on it. You can't really. <laughs> Always the man with the metaphor. That's very good. Hey, you want some dessert? Just yeah. At the end? I, yeah, I think I've got enough room left. We've got. Okay. Yeah. Um, here's my dessert. I got weddings on my mind, John. Oh, I've yeah. got, I'm marrying That's two right. daughters. Two weeks from now, you summer. said? One is two weeks from now, which is what is today on the recording. Or uh, on I, the I knew yesterday what it was. It's so June the, 15th. So right June now. 29th, which will be in the yeah. past tense by the time this airs, I'm sure. We'll see. Oh, well. Okay, we will. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> if past history. very possible, <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Um, Schrodinger's wedding. <laughs> I was. Uh, I'm not going to do this. I was going to frame my remarks at the reception. I realize this is lame, but in terms of who's marrying up, so which of these two beautiful children oh, is okay. marrying up? And I had some jokes to go with that. But uh, the uh, what kind of hit me? This is not. This is probably cliche and corny. But what kind of hit me is that we are the bride of Christ, and we've all married up. You know, yeah. we've all been pulled from the wreckage of humanity and. And uh, as far as indirect communication, I probably said this in other contexts, but Jesus saying, in my father's house are many rooms. Not my insight that this just does kind of sound like a wedding proposal. A very indirect one. Mm-hmm. You know, a promise of everything I have and everything I am is going to be yours. We're in my father's house are many rooms. If I were not, I would have told you that whole thing. Yeah. So indirect. Yeah, so, I, can, I can see how that would be even an indirect statement to make at the wedding itself is you right. start off with a playful... Sort of, you know, who's marrying up here? And then you can, like, you tie that in at the end. It could be very powerful. Maybe. We'll see. Maybe now I have to air this afterwards. (laughs) You know, again, in the simplest of terms, indirect, just often leaves you that little piece. You got to... You gotta work out. What was he mm-hmm. saying here? You There's know, a morsel, and I can't eat it for you. You've yeah. gotta eat it yourself. It's, yeah, it's like uh, telling somebody a joke. You can't communicate the laughter. They yeah. have. They, there's always gonna be that piece they have to get. 
you got to sure. get it, or you're going to be on the outside of it. Yeah. Me explaining it to you directly is not going to. Yep, I cannot help you anymore. <laughs> no. but I can help lead you there. Yeah, so that's a, just a yeah. I'm kind of glad that came up as a. I can bit of a, help you stand on your own. Yeah, that's right. That's how we always said it. So a little bit of icing on the cake as far as what indirect is. It's going to be that piece that, like all story does, we probably said that it just leaves mm-hmm. that that sense making. Um, you got to get it. I can't get it for you. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you about Jesus, but the joy, the joy part, that's the Holy Spirit's yeah. going to have to take you there. I no. can I can tell you maybe what a Christian is, but I can't. It, I can't. You have to experience that for yourself. Exactly. I can't exactly. experience that for you or bring you there. Yeah, and so. that's going to be, I think, a nice one yeah. of the small segues to the next episode. Is okay. What does this mean now for education, for art, for witnessing? Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be some fun things to explore. That yeah. Way. Awesome dessert for you? Or are you? No, I think I, I think I'm full now. Okay, from, from this one, <laughs> full we'll in see. a good way. Full in a very good way. So, all right. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. It's been a pleasure. It's been a great time. We'll see you next time on Where Two or Three.